The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'll be talking today with Dr. Deborah Tannen about family talk when you're all grown up, how parents and adult siblings talk with each other. Deborah Tannen is best known as the author of You Just Don't Understand, Women and Men in Conversation, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for nearly four years, including eight months at number one. This is the book that brought gender differences in communication styles to the forefront of public awareness. Deborah's more recent work has focused on adults in families and how they communicate with each other. And we'll probably mention titles of some of those books as we go along in our conversation today. Um, Deborah has appeared on 2020, The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, Oprah, Nightline, Good Morning America, and many shows on CNN and NPR. Her work has been featured in or published in the New York Times, Newsweek, Time, USA, Today, People, the Washington Post, etc., (laughs) etc. Dr. Tannen is Professor of Linguistics at Georgetown University. Welcome to the show, Dr. Tannen. So nice to be here. Thank you. (laughs) So I would like to start with a definition. What is the field of linguistics? Linguistics is the scientific study of language. My subfield is discourse analysis, which means we study language as it's spoken in discourse, or sometimes we refer to it as sociolinguistics, which is language as it's used in social interaction. So that's, that's the way I've applied linguistics uh, in my own work. Mm-hmm. My impression is that you were one of the first people to pay attention to that subfield within linguistics. Is that true? Yes, it's true that I was one of the first people in the field of discourse analysis. There were other subkinds of sociolinguistics where there certainly was a lot going on before I um, was trained and did did my own work. Uh, yeah, I was lucky to come into the field when the study of everyday conversation was burgeoning, and it was really um, an exploding field at that time. This is the mm-hmm. late 70s, early 80s. I think it was part of a general zeitgeist in academia where people were looking at everyday life, uh, where before they might have um, been looking at somewhat more rarefied um, aspects of human behavior. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. How did you happen to get interested in linguistics? 
I came to linguistics late. I um, was one of those people who, after college, did not want an academic life. I just wanted to live abroad, learn languages, and have a very different and interesting and exotic life. I ended up living in Greece in the, on the island of Crete and then Athens. Uh, and there I, is where I was teaching English in order to support myself there. And that's where I became aware that there was this field called linguistics, because many people who teach English at the second language have training in linguistics. Um, I came back, I got a master's in English, taught English for a while, freshman composition, remedial writing, and as I was nearing 30, I realized that I really wanted something more intellectually stimulating, and I was thinking, gee, should I get a Ph.D. in English? That was my background. Or should I see what this new field of linguistics is all about? I went to a summer institute in linguistics at the University of Michigan, and I was so lucky that that summer, it's kind of what I referred to before, language in context was the topic, and all the people who were beginning to work in that field had come together and were teaching there. And I was especially inspired by uh, someone named Robin Lakoff. She was on the faculty at Berkeley, and so I went to Berkeley for a Ph.D., and I never looked back. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And you wrote a lot of really good books. You've had, what, at least three New York Times bestsellers, right? That's correct, yeah. I've published 23 books, of which um, 11 are authored the other edited or co-edited, um, and of those seven or four general audiences, and of those three were on the New York Times bestseller list. That's right. Okay. Well, our plan for today was to focus on how adults in families talk with each other. And I know a couple of the books, you have intriguing titles for your books. I only say this because I love you. <laughs> Talking to your parents, <laughs> partners, sibs, and kids when you're all adults. Um, how do you do research for books like this? A combination of uh, interviewing people. So I, if I know I'm writing about a particular topic, I ask to talk to people about that topic. Uh, the most recent book was about sisters, and the one before that was Mothers and Daughters. So people told me about people they knew who had seven sisters or you should talk to her. She has such a fabulous relationship with her sisters or you should talk to her. She doesn't talk to her sister. And it kind of uh, went out like a network from that. So I, I talked to people, record the conversations, have them transcribed and, and look at the patterns that come up in the stories. And then some of it is my own experience. So I am one of three sisters, and that was um, I have examples of my own, both in that book and also from my own conversations with my mother in the mother-daughter book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I observe <laughs> one thing about studying everyday conversation is they're going on all the time, all around you. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. when friends talk to me about problems they've had or observations they've made. If I'm writing a book on the topic, I make these mental notes. And uh, I should say I never use anyone's example without getting their permission. I show them what I've written, find out did I get it right, are they comfortable with my using it in the way that I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I read a section of your book about uh, where you included something about conversations with your own sisters in a book. 
and you sent the draft to your sisters, and they had two very different ways of responding to that draft. <laughs> yes. Um, so one of my two sisters likes to read the drafts and give me very detailed comments, and I'm always very appreciative of that. Uh, in fact, uh, she is the one who chose the title You Just Don't Understand, the title of the um, book that was that huge bestseller. I had mm-hmm. told her I was thinking of a title, You're Not Listening to Me, and she said, that's kind of negative. Why don't you call it You Just Don't Understand? <laughs> and, Smart sister. And, I, uh, and my other sister, um, she read the book manuscript for a while, and, and after a while she said, you know, I keep finding that I, I really, she, my sister is so talented. Uh, she makes glass beads from glass, from pieces of glass, uh, and I'm, uh, I'm filled with awe. She puts on goggles, starts up the fire, and, and, and turns these different colored glass tubes into beautiful beads. She said, I realize I would rather make beads than read your draft, so <laughs> how about instead of, of giving you detailed comments, I'll make you a necklace. I loved it. I was so grateful for that. I loved that necklace. And I think that does capture something about families. We're all different. And if you can appreciate each one for the, what they bring to the relationship, I think that's can be the most fulfilling way to um, enjoy the family. Mm-hmm. What are some, we're talking about sisters now, so let's stick with that for a while. What are some of the things that you learned as you were doing your research and writing this book? Yeah, I was very intrigued by the sister relationship because in my earlier research, I often uh, observe patterns where women tended to focus on the question, are we close or distant, where men might focus on the question, who's up, who's down. So um, I'm, it's going to be a long, a long answer, but I will get to your answer about That's this. That's okay. <laughs> so a quick example of that, I was walking along the campus with a female colleague, and a male colleague came out. It was a brisk fall day, and uh, my colleague, the, my friend, the woman said to the guy, um, where's your coat? And he said, thanks, Mom. <laughs> and she turned to me and she said, what was that all about? <laughs> and I said, well, it's uh, the two sides of the same coin. Um, she was showing interest, just being friendly, and her take on it was, I'm concerned about you. It's cold, and you're not wearing, you're not just warmly enough. And um, his response was, you're talking to me as a mother talks to a child. Uh, it's condescending. Now, I think both of them were good-natured. I don't think either of them were angry about it, but um, it does capture how we have those two sides to every conversation. You can ask, does it put us in a one-up or a one-down position? And you can ask, does it bring us closer or push us farther apart? And I found in my research on gender that frequently women might walk away from a conversation asking has this brought us closer or pushed us farther apart? Where a man might walk away from the same conversation asking, did this put me in a one-up or a one-down position? Um, another side point here, I often point out the question about why don't men like to stop and ask for directions, which is now part of the culture, actually came from the book You Just Don't Understand. And I used it in that context. Um, you, you say to somebody, I'm lost and I need your help. Uh, many women seem to feel okay, you know, made a connection, got where Mm -hmm. I'm going, didn't lose anything, where many men may feel, um, put yourself in a one-down position to a stranger, and it's it's awkward, so I'd rather avoid that. 
Um, so sisters are very interesting because both of those dynamics are at play. Uh, it's a family relationship which is extremely close, but siblings are always reflecting their place in the sibling hierarchy. So the oldest sister is always in a, in a kind of, um, you, you might say, um, dominant position over the younger ones. And dominant is the wrong word. I, I wouldn't really choose that word. But um, I'll give you an example of something that captures that. Uh, the the Delaney sisters. There was a book about them some years ago called Having Our Say, <clears throat> and and uh, one of the sisters, uh, Bessie Delaney, said, "Teddy looks at me in that big sister sort of way. I can tell she doesn't approve of me sometimes." When she said that, she was 101. Wow! But her sister <laughs> Sadie was 103, <laughs> and that feeling that her older sister was kind of disapproving, looking at her in that big sister sort of way, was still there. In another part in the book, Sadie commented, the only reason I'm still alive is to keep her alive. If she lives to be 120, I'll just have to live to be 122 so I can take care of her. Isn't that lovely? And those are the two sides of the hierarchical relationship that is built into the age, the age hierarchy of siblings. Um, I was very, I, I'm the youngest of the three, and to me, the chapter I wrote about oldest siblings was really the most fascinating um, because oldest sisters were often accused by younger ones of being bossy and of being judgmental. But older sisters are put in the position of being like a mother, take care of them, uh, make sure they do the right thing, um, teach them this, watch out for them. Mm-hmm. And then when they do it, the younger ones resent them. You're not my mother. <laughs> but they're put in the position of being like a mother. Um, uh-huh. uh, so that is what was very fascinating to me about uh, siblings. In, in addition, there seems to be a built-in comparison between siblings. Uh, so a woman told me she... Uh, she said uh, she was only 5'2", and she said she feels like a giant because her sisters were five feet. Um, a woman <laughs> who told me she graduated number 10 in her class, but she always thought she was dumb because her sister graduated number one. That built-in comparison, and many families uh, talked about the pretty one and the smart one. Mm-hmm. And believe it or not, I encountered more than one family in which the pretty one and the smart one were identical twins. Oh, my gosh. It seemed to be something about the um, impulse to compare when, when, uh, when you have two next to each other. And so that can, that can be challenging for, for siblings. Um, I think <laughs> of the woman who told me that as adults, her sister said to her, did you ever wonder why I played the bagpipes? She said, yeah, why did you? Because you didn't. Mm-hmm. She wanted to, be, to have something of her own. Right, right. So how much, what did you learn about closeness and competition between sisters? Yes. Um, and so as I said, the, the fact that sisters can be extremely close, but that 
hierarchical age difference is always there, and the competition is always there. Uh, and it can be a positive thing or a negative thing. Um, so I think, for example, of a woman who told me her, she and her sister both had kind of comparable jobs, and then her sister got a promotion, and suddenly she felt competitive. How come her mm-hmm. sister's got a promotion? And so she went to her work, asked her boss, boss why she couldn't have a promotion, and she got one. <laughs> she wouldn't have thought of going out for the, for the promotion if her sister hadn't uh, inspired that feeling of competition. Uh-huh. Um, sisters, I think also the, the fact that you share so much can, uh, can give you a feeling of competition as well as a feeling of, um, of connection. And, and often it's hard to uh, separate those. Um, I think of a woman, I had uh, asked her something about her sister, and you know, she was telling me, one of the people I interviewed, she said, my sister and I are so close. We just call each other, and when we run out of things to say, we just leave the phone off the hook, but we leave the line open. It's just so lovely to know that she's there. She said, it's a comfort, like hugging a cat. And I thought that was so lovely. And uh, the next time I I ran into that woman, I asked her how her sister was, and she said, I don't know, I'm not talking to her. Wow. (laughs) And that can be, again, two sides of the same coin. They, They were so close that she could easily be hurt. And it turned out that the reason in that case they, she had stopped talking to her was uh, it was something about having not been consulted about a date for, for some celebration, and so she wasn't able to attend. Um, in, in any relationships involving women, often our feelings get hurt because of one of two things. We were not told something or we were not invited to something. And, and that happened with mothers and daughters as well. All right. Um, how often do you think it happens that someone's feelings are so much hurt or someone is so much offended that sisters stop talking to each other for a really long time, maybe for years? Um, without doubt, I encountered examples, families where sisters stop talking for very long periods of time and sometimes permanently. Um, in some cases, after many years, they reunited. And in some, this is an interesting thing too. There are some people who feel you really have to talk about it to find out the root of what the problem was, clear it up, apologize, and there are others who just feel you don't really need to talk about it. Just put it behind you, act as if nothing happened, and bridge it that way. Um, and it's striking because we tend to feel that our way is the right way. And so those who feel you really should talk about it, it's very hard for them to just put it behind you and move on. Those who feel you really shouldn't talk about it, it's just going to dig it up, you're going to stir it all up again, create the bad feelings again, just put it behind you and move on, feel quite intruded upon and... Um, I would say almost invaded when the, if the other sister insists on talking about it. So I think mm-hmm. that's another example of what I said at the beginning. It is really helpful to simply respect that there are different ways of uh, dealing with human relationships and showing you're caring. 
Okay, we're going to take a break now, and I'll be back with Dr. Deborah Tannen talking more about how adults in families communicate with each other after a short break. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, Visit Colin Family Mediation Group.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Colin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself. Get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at collinfamilymediationgroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin on Family Matters, talking today with Dr. Deborah Tannen, who is a professor of linguistics at Georgetown University. Deborah, while, during the break, we were talking about how kids are born into different families unless they're twins, or maybe even yes, if they're and twins. and even if they are twins. Tell, um, yeah, tell me more about yeah. that. I uh, I often I have you know I write in the book I often think of this we're born into the same family but it's a different family when each of us is born it could be changes in where the family lives changes in the circumstances from the point of view of finances uh, there could be a divorce a marriage a remarriage. And just the fact of the siblings who are there before you or no siblings before you changes the family. And different children 
interact with parents' personalities in different ways. I remember a woman who said to me, I think I was a very good mother to one of my daughters, but not the other. Just given the personality of that daughter, I didn't know how to be a mother to her. Uh, twins were really fascinating to me because almost every set of twins that I spoke to or people who had been twins who were twins that I spoke to would tell me very early on who was older. And they never told me who was younger. They told me who was older. <laughs> I think that in itself um, <laughs> is significant. I think of, uh, I sometimes quote uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who, who made this observation. She said, the first child is pure poetry. The rest are prose. And I think those of us who, who came as prose <laughs> sometimes are aware of that. But the very uh, different financial circumstances can be uh, enormous. And you mentioned competition. I mean, of course, there can be a sense of resentment if uh, the family had a lot more money when one or the other was born. If um, parents had more patience with younger ones than older ones, there's often a feeling that among older ones that younger ones get away with things. They, mm-hmm. One woman, you know, for example, she fought for the right to wear heels, but then mm-hmm. her sister came along, and, well, the battle had been won. She got to wear heels when she was a certain age. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, 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 the comparisons, I think, are always there, and I think it's helpful to simply acknowledge that circumstances change, and it isn't really the same family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was certainly true in my family. <laughs> the oldest uh-huh. the oldest girl got, well, the oldest child, who was a girl, got the brunt of all my... My parents had to learn how to deal with a child. Yes. And, and you know, so if they were reluctant to let someone start dating or, you know, in any way overprotective, whatever it was, she had to fight for it. And the rest of us had a much easier time because she had done all that work. Yes, in many ways that that is the case, yeah. Mm -hmm. But then uh, you can also remind her that she's poetry, so (laughs) there's advantages too. (laughs) I think it's a little more complicated than that in our family. (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, How often, how long does it run through sisters' lives that they're competing for their parents' love? Or how often does it happen that the older sister just continues to resent a younger sister because the love used to be all hers and now she has to share it? Yeah. Um, I think there's always a sense of competition for parents' love because, after all, there's it's a limited uh, it's a limited quantity, but um, I think families vary as to how extreme it is and how aware people are of it. I mean, I think in my family, among my sisters, it's it's pretty it was pretty muted, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially as my parents got got to be older. But um, I think families vary. Uh, and it doesn't necessarily end when the parents pa- pass away. Some of the bitterest conflicts that were reported to me and people I interviewed was over the inheritance after the parents were gone. Mm-hmm. And one person commented to me of the, a guy, actually, who was in quite a bit of conflict with his brothers over the inheritance. 
and he said, it's the last chance to grab the love for yourself. And I think there was, a, there was some insight in that observation. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. But I think it varies. I think that yeah. sometimes you can, it's under the surface or you can kind of laugh about it. I think humor is always a very good way to um, blunt the uh, resentment. But, uh-huh. yeah. yeah, I think I read somewhere that you wrote, you often heard sisters say that they wished they were closer and almost never heard the opposite. Is that yeah, correct? you know, that's very interesting. Um, all the women's relationships that I've written about, they tell me almost immediately whether they're close or not and whether they're similar or different. Um, for mothers and daughters, I often heard, we're very close even though we're very different. Or I heard, we're very close because we're very different. And I heard, we're not very close, we're very different. Or <laughs> we're not very close, even though we're very different. So it was every every combination. But um, among sisters, I was almost always told they were different. And I think it had to do with this wanting to differentiate yourself because you're so often compared. But yeah, mm-hmm. the question of whether we're close or not seems to be a way women in particular tend to measure relationships. Um, and But being close can mean very different things, to uh, again, to different people. It may have to do with spending time together. It may have to do with uh, telling secrets, telling things that uh, you might not tell everybody. A feeling that this person knows me so well um, and think of the comment, you know, all we have to do is say one word and we burst out laughing. Mm-hmm. But then also all we have to do is say one word <laughs> and mm-hmm. our backs are up. Um, so uh, that too really is a sign of, of closeness because you're responding not just to what's just been said, but to all the conversations you've had before mm-hmm. in a family where you have such a long history of conversations that you've shared. Uh-huh. And are there ways that brothers, adult brothers talking with each other, it's very different from adult sisters talking with each other? Yes, um, and, and sisters and brothers uh, across the genders also are different. Um, brothers seem to have more conversations about who knows what, uh, it could be playful, it could be rancorous, but often it's more, um, it's, I wouldn't say necessarily more competitive, but more competitive about um, how much you know, how good you are at things. Um, I was often told stories about how sisters and brothers had tortured their younger siblings. The stories I heard from brothers were more often physical, <laughs> physical torment, like three brothers and the two older ones would put the younger one in a, in a box and push it down the stairs. Oh. More physical. <laughs> Where uh, Stories I heard about tormenting um, a younger sister by a sister was more psychological. Uh, for example, my own sister, two years older, um, she said, uh, we, we shared a room, and she proposed something that seemed very rational. Um, how about you can't come on my side of the room and I can't go on your side of the room? And I thought that sounded fair, so I said, okay. What I had not taken into account is that the door was on her <laughs> side of the room. So I was trapped. <laughs> so psychological torment. <laughs> uh, that was a difference. Um, brothers and sisters together are quite interesting. There was a study... 
not too long ago that was published about older people, and they discovered that men who had a sister lived longer than men who did not have a sister. Um, and it's, there was some idea that maybe it was because the sisters talked to them about personal things. But I had spoken to so many people who told me how close they were, even though they did not talk about personal things. There was two sisters that this image has always stayed with me. Um, they were older. One was married. The other was not. And uh, the one who was married invited the one who was not to live with her. And in the morning after her husband had gone out and was making the breakfast, her sister would come climb into her bed, and they would just sit there in bed holding hands and talking. And they did not talk about personal things. In fact, uh, that woman had told me at one point in her life, she had a, she, her husband was actually being abusive, and she didn't say anything to her sister. She said, she has her problems and I have mine. So I think what it was with the, that would um, account for why men with sisters lived longer is that they did talk, not necessarily that crucial what they talked about, but the regular contact with another person and knowing that that person cares about you and cares about whether you're there and whether you answer the phone. And if you haven't called for a while, we'll say, how come I haven't heard from you? Um, it does seem that sisters talk more often to their sisters and to their brothers. And mm-hmm. they talk about more personal topics uh, on average, mm-hmm. which, by the way, also means you have more opportunity to say the wrong thing <laughs> to uh. mothers and daughters as well compared to fathers and daughters. I see. Um, so you mentioned somewhere that for girls and for women, talking is the glue that holds a relationship together. And it's different yes, for guys. Uh, and that is based on research that has been done uh, on children, where girls tend to have a best friend, usually another little girl, and they will spend a lot of time sitting and talking, and that's what makes them best friends. Um, I actually collect pictures from all over the world of two little girls, and one is whispering in the other girl's ear. I have yet to encounter a picture from anywhere of two little boys, and one is whispering in the other's ear. It's such a funny <laughs> thing. Um, and often, yeah, for little girls and for women and older girls, your best friend is the one you tell everything to. Boys seem to play somewhat differently. They tend to play in larger groups. It's the activity that the best friend is the one you do everything with. And uh, often they'll say, this is kids. If there's a fight, we'll be on the same side. Mm -hmm. So boys do use language, but they seem to be using it to maintain their place in the group. So they kind of try to take center stage, uh, talk about what they're good at, tell stories, tell jokes. Quite different from the girls who really don't want center stage uh, because other girls will be critical. She really thinks she's something. Uh So the place of talk in the two relationships is quite different. And this does seem often to um, continue into adulthood. So I remember when the book You Just Don't Understand came out, uh, actually a journalist was interviewing me, commented how reassuring it was to him to be told that his way of being friends was just as good 
uh, he had had a friend who had had uh, was going through a divorce or something, and he had spent the day with that friend, and they they went to a ball game and they did various things, and then he came home that evening, and his wife asked him, "Well, did you talk to him about what he's going through?" And he said, "No, we just did these things." And his wife said. Gee, you let him down. He probably needed to talk. You should have talked. And he felt guilty. Oh. <laughs> and he was reassured to know that often for guys, just being together is reassuring in itself. Uh-huh. And, and often that is how um, closeness is created um, among men doing things together. And, of uh-huh. course, we're, by the way, none of this is 100%, 0%. I mean, we all do things together and talk. It's just a question of what we talk about and the, and the relative balance. Okay. Well, before we take our next break, let's start talking just a little bit about the complexities of the mother-daughter relationship. So often those relationships are complicated and difficult. Uh, what's that all about? Yes, um, so the book about mothers and daughters, which is called You're Wearing That, grew out of the book you mentioned earlier. I only say this because I love you. I had a chapter in that book about mothers, both mothers and daughters and mothers and sons. And when I was interviewed by journalists for that book, I was. we always ended up talking about mothers and daughters. And uh, that was one of the chapters that got the most attention. And this one journalist I was talking to kind of blurted out, I don't get it. Why is that relationship so fraught? After all, we're both women. And I thought for a second and I realized it's because we're both women. Women tend to talk more, talk about more personal things, and that means uh, more emotional um, opportunity to say the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's part of what's uh, going on there. I can give you an. Is, is there time before the break for me to give you an example of yes. uh, mothers and fathers yes. and how they might, how they were, conversations sure. might differ. Yeah. Okay. Um, there was a woman, and, and I teach at Georgetown, and I always ask my classes to report conversations that they observed or were a part of and and analyze it in terms of concepts we're discussing in class. And one young woman. Uh, brought in this this com, uh, theory, um, pair of conversations. She said she was going through a hard time. She had broken up with a boyfriend that she had been seeing for, for quite a while. And she was very upset and, and really wanted as much input as she could get. So she asked each of her parents separately for their advice. She said that when she spoke to her father, her father you know, gave her some advice, gave her his perspective, and then he never brought it up again. When she spoke to her mother, her mother gave her advice, gave her her perspective. She appreciated it. But then every time they talked, she would bring it up. How are you doing? How is he doing? Have you heard from him? Have you met anybody interesting? Has he met anybody interesting? Finally, she had to say, Mom, please start bringing, stop bringing it up. You're making it harder. And then her mother was hurt. And then she felt terrible that she had hurt her mother's feelings. And then she wrote, she understood why often she didn't confide in her mother when she had a problem because her mother would continue to bring it up in that way. But then she realized that that was in itself was hurtful to her mother because her mother really wanted to know what was going on in her life. Uh, and that is something that is very common 
between mothers and fathers. It's not at all unusual. I encountered several instances where they found out something about the, their kid, often a teenager, that they hadn't known about. And the father felt, well, you know, he told us when he was ready. And the mother just couldn't get past it. You know, I thought we were closer than that. If he had told me, I could have helped him. Um, this feeling of wanting to be told what's going on. Again, this measure of connection and closeness as a measure of a relationship. Mm-hmm. All right, that's a good example. We're going to take another break now. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Sadly, that's wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, or co-parenting, there is a better way. Family mediation. Save time, save money, and make good plans for your children. Visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at APFMnet.org. That's APFMnet.org. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. Today I'm talking with Dr. Deborah Tannen about communication, what uh What's on the surface? What's below the surface? How is it different for men and women? What is it like when all the adult members of a family are trying to talk with each other? And I think, Deborah, you had another example, a different kind of example of an adult daughter talking with each of her parents. Yes. 
Uh, so I gave an example before the break of um, a young woman in my class who preferred her father's way of dealing with the problem to her mother's. Well, here's another example I got from another student where she preferred her mother's style. She was sick. Some flu was going around, and she was just so miserable, achy, fever, and she called home. But her mother wasn't home. Normally, when she called home, she would talk to her mother, and that's quite common among my students. They call home, they talk to the mother more than to the father. Um, and if they're texting, they text, exchange texts more with the mother than with the father. Well, this uh, time she called home, and the mother was home, spoke to her father. And the conversation went like this. Oh, Daddy, I feel so horrible. I have the flu and I have a fever and everything aches. And her father said, take Tylenol. <laughs> and she said, but I did and, and it didn't help. I still feel horrible. And he said, uh, well, go to the infirmary. And she said, I tried, but everybody's sick and I couldn't get an appointment. And he said, well, I can't help you then. Wow. <laughs> and what she missed she could hear what, in her mind, what her mother would have said if her mother had been home. Oh, you poor thing. I'm so sorry. I wish I was there to make you a cup of tea. Drink lots of warm fluids and, and calm back, and then I'll call you and find out how you're doing. <laughs> it wouldn't have changed anything, but she right. would have felt comforted. Uh, and uh, the way the father in this case reacted was quite... Not 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 unusual for <laughs> for men, and I wrote about this in the book. You just don't understand. Where he right. really wanted to help, he really wanted to give her advice that could help. Right. And if he couldn't, he really couldn't quite think of what else he could do. Right. So and and guys say, "Oh, you poor thing." <laughs> yeah. So that and was an example of a student who preferred her mother's style. In that yeah. instance. Yeah. Yeah, guys go to problem solving and advice, whereas women go to listening and empathizing. And yes, being and, I, and it's interesting. Uh, women will eventually get around to giving advice. They just don't give it right off the bat. Mm-hmm. Oh, what did that happen? Ask questions. I, yeah, I know what you mean. I felt the same way. And then, then you do give advice, but just not not the first thing out of your mouth. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, so we... We talked a little about how mothers and daughters can misunderstand each other very easily. That um, if a mom talks about the daughter's hair or clothing or weight <laughs> or a variety of other <laughs> topics, um, yes. you know, a mother can um, feel very the powerless. Book is called you were in that uh, because when I talk to women about their mothers, the complaint I heard most often was she's critical. And often it was the big three, hair, clothes, and weight. Sometimes it was also how she raised her children, probably a big fourth. From mothers, what I heard was, I can't open my mouth. She takes everything as criticism. These were two sides of the same coin. Often it was an expression of concern. Um, I give you an example of my own. I was visiting my mother and she looked across the table at me and said, "Um, do you like your hair that long? And I laughed, you know, and she looked a little hurt and I said, that's why I was laughing and I said, well, you know, all these women I'm interviewing for my book tell me their mothers are critical of their hair. And she said, I wasn't criticizing. But then later in the visit, I said, mom, what do you think of my hair? And she said, I think it's a little too long. 
Um, And I could talk forever about, in fact, I just wrote an essay about mothers, daughters, and hair, uh, and it's in a book um, of all essays about hair. It's called Me, My Hair, and I. It's edited by Elizabeth Benedict, just just out. Uh, And I was reading other essays in the book, and it was staggering how many of them talked about their discomfort with their hair and their struggles with their mother over their hair. So what is this all about? A mother's job and a mother's greatest wish is to make sure that everything goes as well as it can for her daughter. Women are judged by appearance. The range of hairstyles and clothing styles that we need to choose from is so vast that the chance is any other person is going to think we made just the right choice. You know, it's actually pretty slim, but mostly we don't say it. But a mother often feels that it's her right or even her obligation to say it, to make sure that everything is as, uh, goes as well as possible for her daughter. The other side of that is any suggestion for improvement is on some level criticism. If you weren't doing something wrong, you wouldn't need the advice. Right. And in the eyes of a daughter, a mother looms like a giant. And she knows you so well, there's a feeling, if she thinks I'm flawed, I really must be fatally flawed. They, I think of the woman who, who told me, um, her mother, she said, my mother's, my mother's kind of getting old and, and her eyesight is going but she can still spot a pimple across the room. Wow. <laughs> now, what is she going to, I think in most cases, she'll say, maybe I read that this, this uh, cream is going to be good for your pimple, or I bought you a tube of this cream. It's to help. But what the daughter is going to hear is, you're seeing my flaws. And yes. you want so much, I think from the point of view of the daughter, here is the person you most want to think you're perfect and she's the one most likely to see your flaws and tell you about them. Mm-hmm. Um, women have both told me how helpful it is to realize that words don't mean only one thing. Mm-hmm. There's a tendency to think, well, I wasn't criticizing. I was only trying to help. And on the other side, I feel criticized. So you mm-hmm. were criticizing. The truth mm-hmm. is it can be both. Yeah. Yes, you're trying to help, and yes, it's critical. And if you realize that both can be true, I think both can get past it. Often mothers tell me that they improve the relationship just by learning to bite their tongues. Mm -hmm. And women have told me they have been able to improve the relationship just by reminding themselves that it really could be a sign of caring. Caring and criticizing are often two sides of the same coin. Mm Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to get to is a list of rules of engagement that you wrote somewhere in one of your articles or books. I don't remember which one. <laughs> yeah, but, but okay. Because... Now, some of them called the argument culture, which is mostly about public discourse, but I do have a chapter in there about arguments and um, the best way to have them because we're going to have arguments with people we're close to. Um, Some of the rules of engagement that I think uh, can be helpful, don't gunny sack. (laughs) There's a tendency once to hold things in and then once you're angry, 
bring it all out, uh, and then this, and then that, and then that. And that makes it very difficult for anyone to deal with that onslaught. Um, second is, if, a, if one partner or one family member brings up a complaint, it's very tempting to come up with a counter-complaint. So I complain that you, uh, I'll make it something small, you know, you left the dishes in the sink, and then I'll say, well, you didn't take out the garbage. So it feels like I'm evening the score, mm-hmm. but... If you think of the rule of engagement, the person who brought up the complaint has a right to have that complaint dealt with. If you want to bring up your other complaint, bring it up another time. <laughs> Don't bring it up as a kind of um, counter punch in the same uh-huh. argument. So um, stick with one is, issue at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Another thing that's important to keep in mind is the difference between messages and meta-messages, so M-E-T-A, meta-message. and It's a term I've adopted from an anthropologist, Gregory Bateson, but he used it for cultures in contact, and I use it for uh, personal conversations. Um, so the message would be the meaning of the words, but the meta-message is what it says about the relationship that you say these words in this way, in this uh, context. And often we end up arguing about the message, about the word spoken, when it's the meta-message, the implications that you're really angry about. And so, you know, you, you, you've made a complaint to somebody and they're defending themselves, or you might feel when you've been, um, somebody has registered a complaint with you, you defend yourself about the messages. You can't say that. It doesn't mean that. I didn't mean that. I didn't say that it would be more constructive to move on to the meta-message. What is it that you're angry about? Why do you feel that way? So um, a small example, there was a father-daughter, and um, this was actually a, a, uh, um, before the days of uh, finding people online. Uh, the daughter was extremely upset about um, a boyfriend having with something with the head left, uh, um, head left turn. It still bothered her. It was several years later, and um, her father went to a lot of trouble to contact that boyfriend, find out what was going on so he could help his daughter, make her feel better about it. She was livid. Mm-hmm. How could he have done this? Instead of just dealing with it on the grounds of, I'm so sorry, I really never wanted to make you feel bad. I really was trying to help, but I see now it was not a good thing to do. He was completely caught up on the message level. Um, Of course I had a right to do it. I was doing it only because I wanted to help you. How dare you be angry at me when my intentions were so good? So he wasn't just listening on the level that the meta-message level that she had had heard, which was the interference with her own personal life. Okay, we are almost out of time. So I want to quickly mention some of the other rules of engagement that you recommended, and then maybe you'll have time to elaborate on them a little bit. And I also want to let people know that they can find more information about you and about your books by going to deborahtannon.com. So you're yes. online, you're not too hard to find. <laughs> but I have a Facebook engagement. page, thanks to my assistant, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, 
things that I remember reading were things like ignoring sidetracks, no insults, no sarcasm, no Socratic questioning to get the other person <laughs> to admit that they were wrong, <laughs> speak for yourself only, when appropriate, apologize, do not demand apologies. <laughs> <laughs> yes, about a uh, all those Andrew, what would you like to say about all that? <laughs> yeah, 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 all important points. Um, maybe I'll elaborate a little bit on the apologies because so many of the arguments that people told me about ended up focusing on apologies. Uh, and often it was the woman who demanded one and the man who didn't want to give one. Um, and uh, it was just actually uh, mind-opening uh, to me um, one of the things I have talked about is how women sometimes are indirect and men can be rather annoyed by that. They say, you should just tell me what you want. Well, often men are indirect about apologizing. Um, Gee, I guess that wasn't much help. (laughs) It could be an apology. Uh, And and often there's the feeling we're getting back maybe to where we started earlier in the conversation. Um, The feeling of... uh, if you approach the apology from the question of connection, it can be the fact that you won't apologize feels like you don't care that you let me down. Mm-hmm. If you look at it from the point of view of power and hierarchy, demanding an apology is like you want me to, uh, you want to rub, rub my nose in it. You just want me to humiliate myself. And a guy can feel like, yeah, I committed a misdemeanor, but you want me to plead guilty to a felony, making such a big deal of it. You know that I wouldn't let you down on purpose. Got it. Yeah. So um, I I think both sides can solve that problem. (laughs) The one who doesn't want to apologize, it could try and find out. Maybe it smooths things over quickly and and it's all over. Uh, And uh, the one who's demanding the apology might just say, you know, I know he's sorry. I don't need to hear the words. All right. And I'll just mention that if your direct efforts at communication within your family don't work out and it's something that really matters, you can look for a family mediator to help you have the conversation. (laughs) Thanks very much, Deborah Tannen. It's been great talking with you. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.